Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound Critical Care provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. In today's episode of the podcast, we will talk about pregnancy, critical care, and COVID-19. Our guest is Dr. Cesar Padilla. Dr. Padilla is an attending physician in the Department of Intensive Care and Resuscitation in the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. He's a practicing anesthesia critical care physician with additional expertise and training in obstetric anesthesia. He's extremely interested in promoting better care of obstetrical patients requiring critical care and has worked in these areas extensively from the clinical, educational, and research perspectives. Dr. Padilla is also an important medical voice on social media, frequently contributing opinion pieces on his blog and kevinmd.com, and can also be reached on Twitter at the Millennial MD. Cesar, welcome to Critical Matters. Hi, Sergio. Thank you for having me. So today, I think that we have a very interesting topic. I think something that obviously uh, touches all critical care practitioners and most listeners of this podcast uh, on one way or the other when they have to deal with a critically ill patient that also is pregnant. But I think it's also a very important part of your practice because you really are a big uh, kind of uh, uh, advanced, uh, kind of in the forefront or an innovator in the development field of uh, pregnancy and critical illness. And really, you kind of occupy a very unique uh, position because you do anesthesia for obstetrical patients, you do critical care for obstetrical patients. And I think you kind of see patients before they get critically ill, when they crash, and when they're critically ill and pregnant and required to be in the ICU. So maybe we can start by just giving us some general thoughts of where pregnancy and critical care is, where you think it's going, your interest in this field in particular, and then we can start with some clinical topics that are more general and and relevant to the critically ill pregnant patient. Absolutely, yeah. So critical care and pregnancy, I like to think of it as a brand new field. And what I mean by it being a brand new field is that the landscape in obstetrics has literally changed underneath our feet in the last 30 years. And to put that into perspective, uh, in the last 25 to 30 years, there has been a near tripling in deaths, um, in, in, in deaths um, uh, due to obstetric uh, causes. So maternal mortality has nearly tripled in the last 30 years. And so the next natural question is, well, why are women dying? And the number one cause of death in the United States is cardiovascular disease. So cardiac disease, medical conditions that are being exacerbated by pregnancy are really leading and surging um, or leading to an increase in maternal mortality. And so this is what I mean by sort of it's a, it's a, it's a new field that's emerging because it's the patient population now is just inherently different than what it was 30 years ago. And I think that also another thing that I think I, I have observed and I, I would imagine contributes is the fact that the uh, um, the age span of pregnant women keeps getting wider. I think that mm-hmm. uh, with all these artificial uh, uh, or um, assisted reproduction techniques, women are getting pregnant at much later ages as well. So, so the, the, 
the, the comorbidities I would imagine are also much higher. Yes, absolutely. So you mentioned something very important in, in mentioning the comorbidities because, as you said, it's really comorbidities that are also driving a lot of the morbidity, a lot of the ICU-level care. Um, you mentioned um, artificial um, or in vitro fertilization, and I believe that's what you mentioned. And we know now, based off of uh, recent studies, that in vitro fertilization does increase the risk of hemorrhage, for example, at birth. And so these are real risk factors that um, that sort of are uh, inherent in our in our patient population that is perhaps um, of uh, of a more advanced maternal age that's using these technologies. Um, and so we also know that advanced maternal age is also associated with a higher risk of ICU level care. And, and I think that in terms of, of ICU care, from a perspective as a medical uh, trained, uh, uh, internal medicine based trained uh, intensivist, I think that working both in medical and surgical ICUs, I have taken care of pregnant patients who either have a pregnancy associated critical uh, critical illness or have uh, underlying disease such as asthma that now requires critical care, but they're pregnant or sometimes taking care of postpartum complications. And you mentioned hemorrhage being one of the most common. But talking with you before we started recording, it also became apparent that you and your unique dual roles as not only an intensivist, but also an anesthesia with specific expertise and training in obstetrics, you sometimes have to think about the potential for critical illness in patients who are not critically ill yet, but are undergoing a C-section or, or delivery. Can you comment a little bit about, about that role? Absolutely, Sergio. That's, that's probably one of the most important aspects of the care that I deliver. And I, what I believe is the future of obstetrics and obstetric critical care. So one of the most important things that, uh, that I look at is the burden of comorbidities in a patient. So there is an evidence-based tool called the Obstetric Comorbidity Index, uh, also referred to as the OCI. And this comorbidity index was developed in 2013 by um, Dr. Bateman, who is currently the section head of obstetric anesthesia at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, a Harvard teaching hospital. Uh, I did my fellowship there, and I worked under Dr. Bateman, and that's where I was introduced to the screening tool. But what's important is that this is an evidence-based screening tool that's the first of its kind in obstetrics, and it utilizes uh, it utilizes uh, comorbidities, and it has an associated weight to it. And the weight is the odds ratio of predicting maternal morbidity or severe maternal morbidity, which is basically the ICD-10 codes that um, identify end organ dysfunction. And so to give you an idea, if a patient arrives with preeclampsia with severe features, that patient has a score of five or an odds ratio of five, the patient is five times more likely to develop severe maternal morbidity. Now, the rest of the comorbidities are comorbidities that a patient can walk into an office setting with. So, for example, uh, if the patient has chronic congestive heart failure, that patient has also a score of five. A congenital heart disease, a score of four. Pulmonary hypertension, a score of four. Chronic ischemic heart disease, sickle cell disease, 
diabetes on insulin, advanced maternal age is also scored, asthma, gestational hypertension, previous cesarean deliveries. And so we understand now that by adding up these numbers, it's, it has been validated in a prospective setting to, uh, to predict end organ dysfunction. And so, for example, if a patient arrives with chronic ischemic heart disease, and um, which gives you a score of three, and it is in vast maternal age over the age of 44, that's a score of six already. And let's say that patient has asthma, you're at a score of seven. And what that means in real numbers based on prospective data is that that patient has about a 12 to 14% uh, chance uh, of developing severe maternal morbidity. The score has also been shown to be pretty good of hemorrhage. And so when I accept the, or when I'm taking care of a patient who has this weight of their comorbidities, it's nice to see that distilled into one number because as a provider, it's all about anticipating sort of the, uh, the deterioration in clinical care. So what I do, for example, is if a patient comes in with a score seven or above, uh, for example, just using that number as an example, I may think about an extra IV. I may want blood. Uh, two units on hold in the room, I will have a more, perhaps a more detailed discussion with the obstetrician regarding um, the complexities of, a, of the cesarean section if the patient's going to have a cesarean. I may think about also my, uh, my uterotonics, the medications I can use to control bleeding, such as tranexamic acid, which we now know is, um, is, is useful and uh, based on evidence for decreasing uh, death in the obstetric uh, population um, due to hemorrhage. So that's how it sort of shapes my um, care of these patients. And then also the critical care skills. If I have a patient that has a high score, I may it, it may um, prompt me to do a point-of-care ultrasound, which is very important for determining uh, cardiopulmonary status in a patient, whether it's volume responsiveness or evaluating for uh, pulmonary edema, as an example. So absolutely, it, the, the, the weight of comorbidities is central towards predicting uh, the ICU level care, but also for planning uh, what are your routine cases in obstetrics like cesarean section, um, which can lead to a lot of morbidity if, for example, you don't prepare and you don't have these things lined up um, at the right time. And this is all important because 60% of maternal deaths are preventable. And this is widely known. The Surgeon General tweeted about this before COVID in December, uh, Dr. S uh, Jerome Adams, who was an anesthesiologist. And that's a remarkable number to me because if 60% of maternal deaths are preventable, then this tool or a tool that predicts severe maternal morbidity is absolutely central in our strategy to address maternal morbidity and mortality. Absolutely, Cesar. I think that this is something worth diving in a little bit further into because I suspect that for the majority of our listeners who are bedside intensivists working in communities and trainees and the people taking care of patients, unless they're doing anesthesia as well, and specifically focusing on obstetric anesthesia like 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 you do um, I think that they miss this 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 concept and I think it's a it's a big paradigm shift because historically I think we've only been reactive to part to, to, to women who become critically ill during delivery right so and a lot of times we react okay. late 
And uh, that obviously is a time-sensitive intervention. And here, I think, with an objective way of assessing a, 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 a population that's getting sicker on average, although the vast majority of women who are pregnant are very healthy, but on average, it's getting sicker for all the things you mentioned. This uh, OCI gives you a very objective way of pre-establishing a higher risk. And like you said, being much more proactive in terms of what are the things that you might need, what are the things that you can implement during delivery or pre-delivery to minimize that risk. But I think it's also very useful for clinicians who are on the, on the receiving end in the ICU to understand maybe what this OCI is, because I'm sure that if they work in places where they have obstetric anesthesia as developed as, as, as with your practice, that might be part of the conversation. Or on the other hand, if they work in a place that needs to refer to these very complicated patients, being able to share that information would also, I think, uh, help people speak the same language and understand what we're talking about in terms of risk. Absolutely. And what you just mentioned, Sergio, this um, sort of the value of intensivists knowing what the score may be is actually somewhat mandated in the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecology, uh, Gynecologist um, ACOG levels of maternal care. So I want to just mention what this levels of maternal care um, sort of mandate is. So ACOG and the Society of Maternal Funeral Medicine, SMFM, have developed these definitions uh, sort of like trauma hospitals. So we know very well as providers what a level one trauma hospital is. We drive down the freeway and sometimes we see signs for what a level one is or a level two. We know level one is the highest, sort of provides the highest level of care. Well, similarly, uh, a few years ago, ACOG and SMFM, along with our anesthesia societies, which sponsor the, 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 the definition, SMFM and ACOG developed their own definitions of the top level hospital, which is a level four, and then your basic um, sort of uh, level one center. And if you look closely at the definitions for the top levels, which is a level four and a level three, there is actually very clear language which states that you need to have medical and surgical ICUs that are available for cross-collaboration with obstetric providers um, at all times. And so what you have essentially is in the definition of the level of care that have now been, you know, released by the leading obstetric societies, you have language that is sort of asking of our ICU providers for this cross-collaboration. And so the way I see a tool like this is I see a tool like this as sort of, mer you know, it it's promoting this natural marriage which needs to happen between an intensive care unit and obstetrics. So, for example, it would be useful if in a large hospital, like let's say it's a level three hospital or a level four hospital, it would be useful if when a patient arrives and it's flagged as a high risk based off the comorbidity index, for example, perhaps that intensivist or the group, whether it's the SICU or the MICU based off the specific conditions, perhaps they should be aware or the ICU should be aware preemptively of that patient because 
I think we've all had those situations when you have a patient just arrive and you know nothing about the patient and you're sort of scrambling to get your things together. But this sort of allows for that preemptive sort of uh, strategy to uh, to prepare, to um, have a multidisciplinary discussion, and um, and importantly, that this is sort of mandated in the levels of maternal care. So this is something that is not going away. <laughs> it's yeah. coming towards us. And the next step after these definitions have been released, the next step is to designate hospitals based off the, you know, which hospitals are going to be B level four, which hospitals are going to be uh, level three. That is going to be rolled out. But to give you an example of how serious uh, states are taking these mandates, you know, Texas is uh, sort of been leading the country with mandating um, these levels of maternal care into their legislation, um, into legislation. And so Texas has a very centralized sort of approach towards uh, the, the delivery of uh, maternal care. And they have served as sort of an example for what the rest of the country can do. So this is definitely something that's coming, and uh, as I like to say, it's coming to an ICU near you, and uh, whether and it's, it's up to us to prepare and sort of spread this knowledge. Absolutely, and I think that also to mention, I mean, you mentioned Texas. Obviously, I'm based in, in, in Texas, in Houston. Uh, one of the things that's also always been very interesting to me is that the maternal mortality in Texas is very high compared to the rest of the country. So obviously something that's much needed and, I, and I'm happy to hear that at a, a state level, they are implementing systems to try to improve the care of these obstetric and especially the critically ill obstetric patients. So that's always welcome, welcome news. So this obviously is very helpful. I mean, as you're planning and for patients who are a, either a, usually in labor and delivery, but what about what, what, what I think a lot of us also experience is patients coming to the ICU uh, either after or just because they're pregnant with other conditions. What are the most common reasons that patients come to, to the ICU when they're pregnant, Cesar? Absolutely. That's a great question. So, yeah, you're always going to have those patients that arrive that have no comorbidities, right? Um, and so um, the most common uh, cause for admission is hemorrhage. That's going to be your bread and butter admission to a um, to an ICU. Now there are more. It's, it, there's a higher likelihood that they're going to have comorbidities, but sometimes they arrive because there may have been a surgical com you know complexity or or, or just um, you know the patient is bleeding um, due to uterine anatomy. And so when a patient arrives to the ICU, the way you know my perspective on a bleeding patient, and I'll just focus on bleeding for uh, because of the incidence of, of sort of the ICU admission, uh, I sort of think about a trauma patient. So what I mean by that is I sort of, you know, I see uh, sort of the world of balanced resuscitation. So let's stick to what we know in the literature and let's give balanced, you know, blood products. You know, let's, uh, let's do a one-to-one to one transfusion, um, let's uh, check coagulation factors. Um, an important lab parameter is a fibrinogen level. So we know that fibrinogen goes up in pregnancy. And um, so certainly if you have levels that are um, 
you know, decreasing or levels that are below normal, those are predictive uh, of hemorrhage at birth. Uh, of course, your COAG, your standard INR, uh, PT, PTT, and um, and then also having the intent of this, just be aware of what are the common uterotonics that are available for you um, it, to give the patient. So we give methogen, can we give um, hemabate, also known as carbopost, or prostaglandin S2-alpha. That medication has like three different names. Trenexamic acid is another one, uh, another medication. And, you know, I think that's sort of the, you know, my mind sort of goes to a trauma patient, you know, it's, and it's all about the, the basics. You know, don't forget about, you know, giving your FFP because you can certainly dilute clotting factors that will just sort of, it becomes a, a, sink, a, a sink where just things can quickly go down the drain for your patient if you're not thinking about a balance resuscitation. Uh, and then in terms of, um, you know, leading causes of death, so this is a separate subject right now because now we're, if we're talking about leading causes of admission, which is most likely hemorrhage um, and or hypertensive disorders of pregnancy like preeclampsia, well, we have to separate that from sort of causes of death, which is cardiac related. So, you know, I'm happy to talk about that, but that's sort of a different um Sort of on a on a different subject and a different scale, just because that is much much less likely, of course, just naturally, but that does entail sort of a a different approach and a different strategy. And and Cesar, let me ask you in terms of outcomes of pregnant critically ill patients, um, where especially when they have a non-pregnancy related um, diseases. How does it compare to non-pregnant women with the same disease, like let's say sepsis or ARDS, pregnant versus non-pregnant? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, absolutely. So in general, uh, women are at higher risk of morbidity and mortality because of uh, pregnancy. So you brought up sepsis. So inherently, there's a higher risk of, of death because pregnancy is an immune compromised state. And so we know that sepsis is a leading cause of maternal death. And if you look at the CDC data of cost-specific mortality for the last 25 years, sepsis has remained the leading cause of death. It's not the leading cause of death, it's one of the leading causes of death, but there has been no increase really or no significant decrease. It just always has been there. We're not very good at capturing and uh, sort of timely treatment of septic patients because as I mentioned earlier, 60% of maternal deaths are preventable and so sepsis has always remained the problem. So the reason, as I mentioned, is because of this immune compromised state. Now, if we were to break that down and I do want to focus on sepsis a little bit. Why is it that women, that, that pregnant women are at higher risk of sepsis, uh, and specifically which type of bacteria are they more susceptible to? We know based off animal models uh, that uh, patients are at a higher risk of lipopolysaccharide induced infections, which come from your gram negative bacteria like E. coli. So E. coli is a very common organism. So when you're treating a patient with sepsis, you want to think about your gram-negative coverage, your anaerobic coverage. That's very important. 
um, what you're over, you know, you're going to start off with your broad spectrum sort of coverage, but absolutely keeping in mind that uh, that gram negative sort of polysaccharide infections are are common, and um, you know I think that's one of the most important kind of disease states to to talk about that sort of sort of highlights the higher uh, you know morbidity in, in in these patients. ARDS, you brought up uh, ARDS as well. Uh, again, there is, uh, you know, put that in the same category as sepsis infection. A lot of data for ARDS in pregnancy came from the H1N1 outbreak, uh, of the, the influenza outbreak where a pregnant women were at higher risk of developing uh, morbidity and certainly dying. And that is certainly true when compared to their non-pregnant counterparts. Um, things are a bit different with COVID. It's not following the blueprint of H1N1, but um, H1N1 and that outbreak and associated disease like uh, ARDS helped us understand a significant amount of critical illness in pregnancy. An example is the following. There was a lot of patients that were cannulated with ECMO during the H1N1 pandemic, and to our well, to our surprise, perhaps certainly to my surprise, fetal and maternal survivability was was high. It was in some studies above 70%. So imagine you have a patient that could be cannulated on BV ECMO for um, you know for for uh, ARDS and maternal and fetal survivability was certainly was certainly high in this uh, in this demographic. So that gave certainly gives us a lot of hope when treating um, so these critically ill patients that uh, that uh, these sort of invasive um, methods that we use in the ICU are certainly helpful for this vulnerable patient population. Absolutely, and I think that uh, as we as we move forward, one of the things that that has always been important for me, and I, and I wanted to to get some of your thoughts on, are, are the unique challenges that a critically ill pregnant patient presents. I think that there's no question that for a lot of people who obviously are not a, 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 in the obstetrical world, the the challenge of dealing with more than one life is always very stressful, and making sure that we don't do things that ultimately harm the fetus. Also, the timing of delivery, obviously, which is something that obviously our obstetric colleagues, I mean, decide. But also, that always puts a lot of pressure, I think, in the in the in the ICUs when we have these pregnant patients who are critically ill. But one of the things that also I think is very unique, and I wanted to dive in a little bit, is that pregnancy as a state has uh, physiological changes that are associated with it that I think have important implications in terms of critical care support in terms of recognition of illness, in terms of uh, targets for, for care. And I think it's always something good to, to review because most intensivists are not seeing pregnant patients on a daily basis like somebody in your uh, venue uh, of, of work would, would, would as you're very Im embedded in this niche. So maybe we can dive into a little bit of the physiology of pregnancy and how it impacts illness and critical care or, or, practi or practice of, of medicine in the ICU. Absolutely. It's such a central topic uh, and such an important topic to really to really dive into. So I sort of have in my mind um, the highlights of pregnancy-induced changes in physiology. 
uh, you know, if we start with, uh, let's start with the brain. So when, as an intensivist, I think of systems-based. So when I have my residents present to me, I have them present in a systems-based fashion. So I'll just present to you in a systems-based fashion. So we'll start with the brain. So inherently, there is, um, patients are more sensitive to sedatives. And we use um, the MAC level, the minimum uh, alveolar concentration level in anesthesia, which is sort of predictive of the um, the amount of anesthetic that a patient needs to be essentially sedated. It's about uh, 40% um, reduced from non-pregnant patients. So if I have a patient who requires a benzodiazepine in the operating room, one milligram is certainly going to have a profound effect, perhaps the same as about two milligrams in a non-pregnant patient. In general, patients are just more sensitive uh, to sedatives. Uh, progesterone, which is a hormone that does go up in pregnancy, obviously is um, has been um, implicated as causing that decrease in sort of the, the, the threshold for sedation. So that's key. I think that's very important for all of us to, to remember. Um, and then there are new alternatives in the incentives that have been found to be um, certainly uh, useful in pregnancy. For example, dexmedetomidine, Presidex. There's been a lot of uh, case reports and uh, a lot of evidence showing that um, that it's, it has the potential of being uh, of, of at least showing uh, safety in the pregnant population. It's very lipophilic, stays in the placenta, it doesn't cross over to the baby, and it's important to highlight sort of these alternatives, especially if in the world of COVID, right? We have these shortages in propofol, potential shortages in other um, incentives. So a medication like uh, dexmedetomidine can prove to be helpful. And then um, other organ systems that were just moving down, let's think of the, of the lungs. So if we look at the, uh, the lungs and your oxygenation sort of capabilities, uh, Patients who are pregnant at term, and I'll use I'll use the the phrase at term. Patients who are ready to, to deliver, they certainly have a decrease in their um, functional residual capacity, which uh, basically is uh, is going to um, alter your respiratory physiology because these patients are going to have an apneic to desaturation time that is much quicker than a non-pregnant patient. So imagine a patient like this who you induce with no pre-oxygenation, that patient is going to desaturate very quickly. So as an intensivist, it is extremely important for me to plan an effective intubation. So because the patient is pregnant, I understand they're going to have um, less of a reserve in terms of their uh, oxygenation. As, as I mentioned, to their FRC that's decreased, I will pre-oxygenate that patient, I will denitrogenate that patient, and that will lead, you know, that will prolong my apneic to desaturation time. What's important as well is because of the uh, after 20 weeks of gestation, because of the pressure of the of the uterus and the and the baby on the great vessels, you have a potential for compression of the great vessels. And so you need to tilt your patients to the left at least um, 15 degrees. What helps really is to put a wedge underneath, uh, you know, on their on their right side, so you're tilting them to the left. That, you know, 
alleviating that compression is really useful. And uh, to give you an idea, there was some um, really good evidence suggesting and showing that if you measure cardiac output, patients were tilted and those will remain flat. And even though patients may remain asymptomatic, if they're flat, they still have a less, uh, the cardiac output is less. And also during a cesarean section, they require more vasopressors. So they require more uh, phenylephrine, for example, which is a very common pressor that we use. So that's a very simple fix as an intensivist that everyone needs to do. So the, the other day, you know, I was I just thinking of a scenario in my mind where it's, you know, taking care of a patient. The first thing you want to do is just tilt them. And just tilt yep. them to the left. Easy. It's going to help you. The heart, you have an increase in stroke volume. You have an increase in, this is, you have an increase in your plasma volume. So your cardiac output is going to increase steadily. That, incre- that is maximized after delivery. You have auto transfusion. So all the blood that was going to the baby, uh, that was going to the placenta is now going back. To the, the system, and so you have an increase in cardiac output that's maximized after delivery. And then perhaps another system that's important to mention as well is um, is uh, hypercoagulability, so your hematological state. So patients are at a higher risk of um, of, uh, of clotting, and um, certainly you have patients that are higher risk for um, like pulmonary embolism, DVTs. Uh, you know, disease states from, from from that standpoint, but those are sort of the, the highlights: neurological, cardiac, respiratory, and keeping in mind your simple things like tilting a patient, and then uh, hypercoagulable disorders. And I already mentioned before, sort of your immune depressed state, uh, the the immune depressed state that happens in pregnancy. But those are sort of some of the highlights that allow me to really think about the unique implications in pregnancy, especially as an intensivist. Absolutely. And I think that as we talk a little bit more about some of the therapies within COVID that are supportive care, we can uh, reemphasize and dive into some of these a little bit more. Now, um, as intensivists, I think that we all believe that we are pretty good at determining who's critically ill and who's not. But sometimes that can be very challenging. And I think that in pregnancy, it can even be more so. And I uh, how do we recognize as our a critically ill pregnant patient? I mean, sometimes it's very obvious, but I think there's a lot of times that there's clues in front of us that if we don't pay attention, we might miss. Could you comment on that a little bit? Absolutely. It's a fantastic question. And it's, it's a question that is actually, uh, or the answer is evolving as we speak. So how do we recognize a critically ill patient? My central tool is echo. So we know now that patients with preeclampsia with severe features, which is highly, highly, highly predictive of, um, of ICU level care of severe maternal morbidity when compared to patients who don't have severe uh, preeclampsia with severe features. Uh, a significant, uh, about 20% of these patients based off a recent study from um, at a Stanford looking at point of care ultrasound in these patients showed that they have evidence of interstitial syndrome, basically B lines or evidence of acute pulmonary edema on, um, on ultrasonography. So, point of care ultrasound, I go to that first because if a patient does have shortness of breath and the patient has evidence of interstitial syndrome, has pulmonary edema, B lines, that patient has evidence of end organ dysfunction. Essentially, that patient is going to require close monitoring which 
is the same as an ICU level patient because either that patient is going, you know, you know that patient's going to have impending respiratory compromise if they're not delivered, or you need to um, have a plan for that patient, whether you're going to diurese or, or how are you going to treat that patient. So I, I think that point of care ultrasound has really helped from that standpoint. Uh, we understand that uh, also a significant, um, the diastolic dysfunction is also very prevalent in preeclampsia with severe features. And then the one, you know, other things just sticking to our standard definitions in the ICU world is looking, for example, at the Berlin criteria for uh, ARDS. I think that an arterial blood gas and looking at the P, PA to, PO to the FL2 ratios is a very useful tool because it's standardized. You can go to any hospital here, Germany, and we all know, you know, we can all cross-reference PF ratios. And I think that utilizing those ratios in pregnancy is extremely important. I, you might, one of my mentors always said, you know, a pregnant, a patient who is pregnant and delivering on oxygen is not normal. And it's certainly true because there's not, there's really no, there's no reason for a patient to be on oxygen other than that patient is sick. You know, something else is going on. But a lot of times it really the physiology that's driving someone who perhaps is more robust and maybe perhaps younger, it can easily sort of introduce a bias into your perception, oh, they're, the patient's okay, they're just on they're just on three, four liters of oxygen, but we really need to have our ICU hats on and think about, no, well, why is that patient on three or four liters of oxygen? It's not normal for a 35-year-old, just throwing a number out, 35-year-old to be on three to four liters of oxygen. That is, a, you know, let's do a point of care ultrasound. Let's uh, perhaps check a PF ratio. And, um, you know, those have certainly become um, very standard tools that uh, that I have certainly used. And then another one that is absolutely central is your lactate level. So I mentioned earlier, sepsis is the leading cause of maternal death. But getting a lactate level, which is just showing your level of inadequate perfusion, is absolutely central in guiding your uh, resuscitation and really you know, stratifying the risk of your, of your patient. And these are all things that are very routine in the ICU level setting, right? So we have a patient that's admitted with sepsis. We do get a lactate. If we're worried about their, you know, if they have an arterial line or their risk for respiratory compromise, we get a, a PF ratio. We certainly, you know, the, the world of ultrasonography is, is really revolutionized the way we deliver care in the ICU. And these are things that, apply to pregnant patients as well the it's the culture of bringing the ICU to labor and delivery so as an intensivist we have our our eyeglasses on which are our our lenses our ICU lenses that we have so we see the world through end organ dysfunction and in sometimes on labor and delivery we want to put the other lenses on which are the lenses of for everyone's young and healthy but what our landscape, what our demographics have proven is that, as I mentioned earlier, there's a change in demographics, which is getting sicker, higher ICU level care, mortality is increasing. So how do we take the lenses, the, how do we put those glasses on, those ICU glasses on labor and delivery? And that's really, to me, that's the fun part 
about the future of obstetrics is that this is all opportunity for us to to help create these changes. And you know, the, the and as you mentioned earlier, you know, treating a patient as if they're you know as if they're not pregnant is also just important. You know, you just need to approach a patient with the same sort of um, sort of lenses that we all have in that we all have on in the in the ICU. But those are some of the sort of the highlights that I think about when um, sort of I, trying to identify critical illness in in obstetrics. Excellent. I think that it's a it's a very important point that I want to reemphasize is that we 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 get used to seeing people uh, on oxygen, and when somebody's on a couple of liters of nasal cannula, it almost looks like normal to to critical care intensive, especially in these days with COVID, and we feel very comfortable. Uh, sending those patients out of the unit or, or not thinking that they require critical care. But like you said, in a pregnant young uh, female, uh, the need for oxygen should be a red, a red alarm for us that something's not right. And I think that investigating a little bit more, I think, is, uh, is the way to go. And I think that's an important problem that we not only have with pregnancy, but I think in general, we sometimes we have with younger patients, which is not the, what we usually see in the ICU. So we normalize so many things that in some particular populations is quite abnormal that we have to be very careful there. Absolutely. So I would like to, to talk, obviously we're in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, I think uh, I recognize that um, uh, we've been seeing millions of cases of COVID-19 in the United States for the last several weeks. And in some places such as where I am in Texas, the numbers are rising again very quickly, suggesting second waves. Uh, and there's been a lot of talk about COVID and pregnancy, recognizing, uh, Cesar, that we obviously don't have a lot of clinical trials that are specific for COVID and yet even less specific for pregnancy. But I do think that there's things that we've learned, things that we're doing in these patients on a regular basis within respiratory support, drug therapy, and anticoagulation, for example, that I think have applications if we were to have a pregnant patient. And what I really wanted to do is just tap into your expertise as a obstetrical expert in critical care and kind of maybe talk about what, what we know, what we don't know, but also kind of, I mean, what are some of the, the underlying basic uh, concepts that we can apply to the bedside if we were to have a patient who now is pregnant and has, and has COVID? And uh, you did mention earlier H1N1, which obviously was a previous pandemic that a lot of us dealt with. I mean, much smaller numbers, but also, I mean, I, re I recall very vividly some of these cases with pregnant, young pregnant women who were extremely ill. I mean, I remember, like you said, I mean, at that point, we were using a lot of oscillators, ECMO, and the prolonged, prolonged courses of mechanical ventilation support. But like you said, with remarkable uh, positive outcomes, both of, of, of the fetus and, and the mother. So obviously, when COVID started, a lot of people were very concerned about pregnancy. But right now, based on what we know, do pregnant women have a particularly higher risk of contracting COVID? Do we know that right now, Cesar? Fantastic question. Because, you know, when, whenever a pandemic arises, we always think about the previous one, right, to compare, which is natural. Um, so we think about like the Middle Eastern respiratory uh, syndrome, H1N1. So right now, you know, if you look at the um, the ACOG and the SMFM sort of statements uh, with regard to COVID-19, there's really limited data, but it 
what they what those societies which are sort of the leading obstetric societies state is that um that right now the data that's available does not indicate that pregnant individuals are at an increased risk of infection or severe morbidity, which basically is you know your need for an ICU level of care or mortality when compared to non-pregnant individuals. So that's fascinating because that sort of signals something different from um, from uh, sort of like H1N1, for example. Um, understanding that, um, you know, we have to keep our physiology sort of intact, knowing that these patients are also uh, have a, um, a decrease in their immunological sort of response um, as they're pregnant. Um, but also looking at the same sort of statements from ACOG and SMFM, what they also recommend is that you assess the clinical risk of a patient. So they under, you know, what they're stating is that you have to look at the patient's comorbidities like hypertension, diabetes, asthma, chronic heart disease, a lot of the same ones that are sort of outlined in the screening tool that I mentioned earlier in the OCI, because that will sort of place your patient in a different uh, category. Um, and we know that. There was a study recently from the United Kingdom that looked at 400 patients who were, uh, of, you know, they followed 400 patients with COVID positive, and um, they looked at the ICU-level care for, for those patients, which I believe is 10% of in that study. And advanced maternal age and obesity was um, was increased in that group of higher of, of requiring uh, ICU level care. So though, and those are comorbidities that are clearly you know well recognized. And I believe that 40% also of that population had comorbidities. And so those are things that are identifiable and that are quantifiable. Advanced maternal age, obesity, you know, BMI is certainly one of the the scoring indexes that we use, and your comorbidities. So that paper from the UK sort of mirrors the sort of uh, assessment of clinical risk that ACOG and SMSM have. So even though they're not saying the exact same thing, they're acknowledging that a patient with comorbidities may, in fact, have an inherently higher risk of clinical deterioration. And so that's sort of, you know, the way that I would approach a patient is that, you know, this is perhaps a virus that's different from the previous, you know, pandemic that we've had. But nonetheless, it stands that if you have a higher comorbidity burden, that patient may become sicker. That patient may deteriorate based off uh, at least some of the limited uh, evidence that, that we have and based off the ACOG and SMSM statements. Absolutely. And I think that, that that's interesting because with H1N1, I recall that one of the pregnancy by itself was a risk factor, not only for yeah. infection, but for severe disease. And uh, and we saw a lot of young women who were pregnant who became very ill who had no real comorbidities in addition to to their pregnant state. But uh, what about is there anything um, right now, uh, Cesar? About there's been a lot of talk about healthcare workers and their risk, obviously, and understanding PPE, the challenges with PPE. I mean, that's been like a very unique situation with this pandemic. Uh, but uh, 
obviously we have a lot of colleagues who might be pregnant, a lot of healthcare workers who are pregnant. I think it, it all depends what's going on in each hospital, places where they were able to accommodate and maybe decrease the risk of exposure. People have done that, but is there anything official on the risk of a healthcare worker? Obviously they would take the same precautions that anybody else would, but is there anything official from ACOG or from anybody else CDC that you know of? No, and not that anything, nothing comes to mind, but there has been a hot topic recently that ACOG and SMSM has talked about, which is, you know, this has been on the, you know, recently on, um, you know, the risk of vertical transmission has been certainly, um, you know, highlighted. And, you know, some papers are showing that perhaps there is a risk. Um, ACOG and SMSM they, they states that there is no conclusive evidence of vertical transmission of COVID-19, um, although we understand that that is obviously um, sort of evolving. And this is from a, a statement from um, from late April um, that they that they published. Um, but, you know, in terms of, you know, the risk that a healthcare worker you know, has in, in terms of contracting the, uh, the virus, I think that the last few months have sort of shown us, right, and you know, just looking at epidemiological data, that the risk of, um, of asymptomatic transmission is perhaps more important than what we previously thought. So we sort of understood that in, in you know, late March, April, and um, certainly wearing masks and, and you know utilizing the mask to reduce the aerosolization has definitely helped. And um, I think that we've arrived to that conclusion has has uh, has helped. You know, as as professionals in the medical setting to say that yes, you know, masks do in fact help uh, prevent transmission and your standard hand washing and all that, of course. Yeah. Um, but I know that unfortunately, you know, the whole issue of mask wearing has sort of taken on, for whatever reason, it's taken on sort of this divisive sort of, uh, you know, tone in the, in, in the, you know, when we're talking about sort of the, our approach to COVID, but, um, you know, that's been, you know, at least what I've seen in the literature is that. You know, wearing a mask definitely helps, and it, and and it definitely decreases the risk of uh, not only you transmitting, you know, potentially the virus, but of also receiving it as well. Absolutely, and I think that at this point, um, there's a very a good data. There's a nice meta analysis from from Lancet looking at uh, the use of mask, social distancing, which is in terms of distance, right? One meter is better than closer than one meter and two meters better than one meter and the use of face shields. But also we know the using the using of frequent and, and deliberate hand washing are all things that definitely mitigate the risk. And for me, one of the big, the big uh, turning points in terms of transmission from what I've observed, at least uh, in many hospitals around the United States that are working within our group is when hospitals went to universal masking, the rate yeah. of, uh, of, cor of, 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 of colleagues being exposed it drops significantly, right? Because it's not that you get exposed in the in the patient you know is COVID positive, is you probably get exposed in the patient that nobody's suspecting COVID positive, like you mentioned with asymptomatic or some other some other issue, which was also interesting because I think in New York at one point they did publish a paper that looked at a whole bunch of a women in labor and delivery, 
And very similar to what happens outside of the pregnancy world, there was a large number or significant large number of people who were COVID positive who had no symptoms uh, or very mild symptoms. So I think that that seems to parallel what's happening uh, in the community as well. Yes. Uh, yeah, that paper from, uh, I believe the paper was from Columbia, that showed the vast majority of, of these patients were asymptomatic. And I think that really was, uh, that paper was uh, sort of, um, you know, it sort of, sort of took the obstetric world from surprise. And I believe the, the, the title of the, was like, it was like nine in 10 pregnant patients with, uh, with, with COVID-19 were asymptomatic, at least um, based off this, uh, this study, but absolutely, that's that's uh, very important to note. Sort of the the potential risk of asymptomatic transmission. So, so it seems that what what we've learned, and obviously this is a very evolving uh, and fluid uh, situation and body of knowledge. But pregnancy per se does not convey a higher risk of infection or a worse outcome. Comorbidities associated with pregnancy play the same role they play in not only in maternal morbidity, but also in COVID-associated morbidity. And I think that's something mm -hmm. important to recognize. And, uh, and mm -hmm. what we know is that the vast majority of pregnant women who get COVID, like the vast majority of people who get COVID, will have very mild to symptomatic disease. But there's a subset of patients who will develop symptoms that are severe enough that they would require to come to the hospital. And there's a subset of those who might get critically ill and end up in our ICUs. And what we're seeing, obviously, is that when the numbers are so big, that small subset of 5% coming to an ICU can be enough to overrun ICUs. But so clearly, there's been COVID-positive patients who have developed symptoms severe enough to go to the hospital, be hospitalized in the ICU. And among those, we could have pregnant, and there have been some pregnant patients, even though it's not necessarily... A, a, a disproportionate number of those patients uh, being pregnant. But let's talk about three areas, Cesar, and I want, you, want your thoughts on, on these topics. Obviously, I think that right now, infection prevention and control has always been, I think, a, a cornerstone of what we're doing with COVID. But right now, in terms of treatment, when I think of the ICU, you really have, I mean, kind of like uh, three big buckets, which is uh, supportive care, which is mostly going to be centered around respiratory support, a little bit of hemodynamics, but mostly respiratory. Uh, drug therapy, which obviously everybody uh, has been hoping for some miracle cure. We don't have one, but we did. We have learned that some things work and some things don't work. So I think that's positive. And then finally, there's been a lot of talk about a, a, a supportive or adjunctive drug therapy or care, such as anticoagulation within COVID, which also I think plays an important role in pregnancy in general. So maybe we could just talk about those. And I, I know making the caveat that there's not a lot of specific trials for pregnant patients with COVID, just understanding what we know about pregnancy, what we know about COVID and how, I mean, you, you, you look at these from a clinical perspective if you were taking care of these patients. So I would like to start with respiratory support and start with oxygen targets. You did mention a decrease in functional residual capacity, and I think that's an important starting point because it, perhaps uh, we need to have a little bit of a higher target with pregnancy. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So in general, it's um, you know just using as you mentioned, using the caveat that there's not a lot of uh, information just based off of these critically ill or pregnant patients. It's, it's there's really 
nothing out that shows um, you know outcomes in in intubated patients and what were the what was the oxygen sort of uh, target, et cetera. But I think that there's a lot of value in looking at the Society of Critical Care Medicine, sort of a resource center for COVID-19. So SDCM has a fantastic sort of uh, uh, outline on you know, treatment algorithms for respiratory failure in COVID-19, which in my opinion are transferable to, uh, you know, you could, can be used in the, uh, in the obstetric setting as well. Um, so when we're talking about oxygen um, therapy, I, you certainly want to maintain the highest level that you can, and the reason is you have a steep drop off in your in your um, hemoglobin um, concentration or your hemoglobin attachment to oxygen uh, when um, when, we, when you're talking about the transferability of oxygen to your baby or to the baby. So you really want to maintain a, a normal level of oxygen. Um, SCCM recommends, you know, uh, supplemental oxygen when you're less than 90%. You certainly want to keep it higher than that um, during pregnancy. But what really has happened in the last few months, which has been fascinating, has been the role of high-flow nasal cannula in COVID-19 and respiratory failure. And, you know, I think just thinking about the um, the role of sort of non-invasive or just high-flow nasal cannula, the ability to provide humidified oxygen that does give you a little, that gives you some uh, supplemental PEEP is um, is an important strategy. Understanding that there's really limited data of this in, in pregnancy, but um, you know, SCCM recommends the use of high-flow nasal cannula with hypoxia, um, and it's recommended over non-invasive ventilation. And I think this is a valuable sort of tool that we have our, uh, at our disposal. And I think in the beginning of the pandemic, it was sort of like, well, early intubation is just the only way to go. But I think that recently that sort of uh, approach has been somewhat challenged. Um, there's a lot of consequences with intubating someone. I mean, you have to use a lot of heavy sedatives. And when you're using sedatives, you know, you have the the um, you know you have metabolites that are building up in the blood and you have patients that could be you know that are at higher risk for delirium and then I mean they just it's, there's a whole cascade that certainly uh, uh, comes from that. And um, I think that yeah I was going to ask you I think that obviously been a lot of debate back and forth and I think that ultimately the, the the way I look at it is we should always intubate as early as possible somebody who needs to be intubated but the question exactly. is sometimes. We've, we 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 found that with COVID, it seems that some people can be supported with high flow oxygen or other modalities, and eventually don't need to be intubated. So that's I think the challenge to try to find that, which requires us to just pay attention at the bedside and look for certain signs. Now, there's been also a lot of debate, Cesar, about uh, for non for non mechanical ventilation, and then we'll go into mechanical ventilation. So the timing, obviously. Like I think some people, like you said at the beginning, were early. They were intubating everybody who required more than more than six liters, or being very aggressive. And then we kind of figured out, well, maybe some people don't need to be intubated, and we can get them through without intubation. But I do think that the message still should be that if you think clinically they need to be intubated, you should intubate. But that you that you can assess where there's other ways to support them. Now. There's been also a lot of uh, discussion versus high-flow nasal cannula versus non-invasive positive pressure ventilation like BiPAP. Um, in ARDS in general, I think high-flow nasal cannula 
probably has more more support just because there's more studies that have shown that it might help. Is there anything mm -hmm. inherent about pregnancy that would make you worry about one versus the other? Like I know when I think of BiPAP sometimes with a, a decreased lower esophageal sphincter tone, precision for aspiration, that some, sometimes worries me in pregnant patients. Uh, but that has nothing to do with COVID. I'm just curious from a purely obstetrical standpoint, do you see one being more uh, appropriate or, or, or that's not really a, an issue? That's a really good question. I don't know if I if I can necessarily make that that distinction. I if I I'll just give you my bias. If I were to you know if I had a a patient who needed hypolymphatic cannula or was a candidate and was pregnant or or that needed supplemental oxygen, I would choose hypolymphatic cannula. But it's more because of the patient comfort. I mean, you're using these nasal prongs. You do get some peep. It's humidified. It's it's titratable. You know, and you should always assume a pregnant patient at term has a full stomach. The risk of aspiration is high. So yeah, I think that's also a very valid point where you were mentioned that you were mentioning is that you're sort of having this lower esophageal sphincter tone that happens because of compression from the uterus, and um, you have this relaxation of that, which does make a patient at higher risk for, for aspiration. Um, so I think that risk is, is certainly, um, it could be potentially a real one. Um, but other than that, I have, I'm not aware of any sort of, uh, uh, so sort of evidence pinning one versus the, versus the other. Um, but I would say from a patient comfort level, tetratability, humidified and the level of PEEP, I would say hypolimnasal cannula probably has, um, in, in my opinion, is probably more advantageous. Okay. And for those patients who eventually, let's say we support with this, there's, there, we should definitely, I mean, I think, put the appropriate infection control uh, prevention uh, as we would with somebody who's not pregnant and very close monitoring. If they're not progressing well, deteriorating, I think that then we make a decision to proceed to intubation. Let's talk, before we go to mechanical ventilation, are there any additional precautions? Uh, I think that we already have learned a lot in terms of uh, intubation, obviously, is a high-risk procedure for aerosolized droplets. So in terms of protecting ourselves, minimizing people in, in the room, making sure that if we can, we use video assisted uh, if, you're, if you're facile with that to improve first pass, uh, being as ready as possible. Anything you would add to all this in terms of just intubating a pregnant uh, patient that, that might be more difficult, Cesar? Yes, absolutely. So when intubating a pregnant patient, engorgement of tissues can make a difficult, uh, can make an airway difficult. And so in general, you want to use a smaller endotracheal tube. That's very critical, and you want to, um, of course, you know, have your and you know, this sort of depends on every hospital setting, right? Every hospital has their own sort of recommendations, but in general, you want to use video laryngoscopy. Um, Preoxygenation is extremely vital, as I mentioned earlier, because of the physiological changes in, in your respiratory mechanics. And if you add on top of that a respiratory illness, um, that certainly makes it even more important to um, preoxygenate. And, you know, earlier we were talking about sort of hypolimnasal cannula 
versus other forms of, of ventilation, well, you can intubate someone on high flow nasal, um, or uh, and, and this is not strict, this is not for a COVID-19 patient, but when I have a patient that's at risk for hypoxia, I've intubated before, uh, certainly having my high flow nasal cannula running. Um, again, that's in a patient where there's no, you know, no risk of uh, of aerosolization of any infected particles or, or whatnot. But um, but yeah, I mean, those are very very good questions. I think just recognizing that your airway is going to be engorged. Um, some studies have put the risk of difficult intubation seven times higher. <laughs> so seven times higher uh, uh, risk of it being difficult compared to a non-pregnant patient. And that the tissues can be friable if you have, um, you know, a traumatic airway. The patient's going to be at higher risk of bleeding. We have much more plasma volume, and you know, you just just imagine um, sort of the vascular engorgement that you have that can place you at a higher risk for bleeding, um, which is um, certainly going to, you know, put you in a different in a different category. But I think that's probably one of the most important things to remember is your risk of aspirations. You want to do rapid sequence intubation. That's also important to, to mention. And the risk of, a, of, of an engorged sort of a edematous airway that's, um, that's certainly um, part of the physiological change of the pregnancy. Excellent. And in terms of intubation, I think that one of the things, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, is this ARDS? I think most people believe that severe COVID eventually I mean, behaves like ARDS and we should stick to obviously what we know works, which is lung protective ventilation, uh, using the the least amount of people we need as as needed for for helping oxygenation and recruitment um, using small tidal volumes uh, a lot of people have uh, used a, a, a permissive hypercapnia in these patients to reduce the the the, the airway pressures are there any specific uh, points you want to make about treating mechanically ventilated patients with a, a pregnant patients with ARDS or with ARDS due to COVID so again, a lot of that data is limited, but if we look back on previous, um, so I'm sort of using the, you know, extrapolating from previous data, right? So if you look previously, um, it's really your standard care, your lung protective ventilation, your your, uh, your, um, your small tidal volumes, you know, in the range of uh, your 46 cc, uh, anywhere from five to eight cc's of uh, per kilo of your tidal volume, uh, permissive hypercapnia, of course, is a, is is also important. Then also one thing that is is critical to mention here is that in pregnancy you are going to have less of a buffer base, so you have um, what is essentially a normal physiologic state at term pregnancy is respiratory alkalosis with um, with compensation. So you will have inherently a slightly higher pH with a bicarb that's going to be a bit lower. So a bicarb of 20 can be certainly normal in pregnancy. And um, that's going to have implications for a patient who's potentially at risk of an infection because that buffer base is going to be lower. It can potentially put you know, at higher risk of, of, a, of a metabolic state, uh, for example. Um, but keeping in mind that sort of physiology is also important when you're um, 
when you're treating a patient with, uh, with mechanical ventilation. But I would say just approaching it definitely sort of based on the previous knowledge that we know from uh, other, um, from our previous uh, sort of studies of ARDS and pregnancy. And it's just it's sort of unfortunate there's not that much data out right now with COVID-19. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I think another thing I was going to ask you, and we talked a little bit about H1N1, but clearly with, with COVID-19, a prone positioning has been proposed for severe moderate ARDS. A lot of patients with COVID-19 on mechanical ventilation are being ventilated in the prone position. And even a lot of people have pushed for prone position and non-intubated patients. Are there, uh, there's no studies I know in prone positioning in pregnancy. But uh, anecdotally, historically, I know that people have prone pregnant patients. Any comments on, from your perspective? Are there any things that we should be cautious with? What are your thoughts? Oh, no, that's a fantastic question. Um, so in, in general, um, again, sort of just treating patients like, you know, when you're a your critical care patient, you know, the, the first you have your caveat, your physiological caveats, but at the same time, you want to, you know, just do what's safest for the patient. So if you look at updates from um, sort of the uh, leading OB societies in, in, in pregnancy and what what's the language of, you know, what do they say about proning? I mean, proning can be done during pregnancy in the postpartum period uh, as well. Um, there's this also the this mention of passive proning, which is basically when a patient is not intubated, um, which we know that, you know, there are sort of these anecdotal cases of proning patients who are not intubated that can certainly, you know, increase your um your ventilation perfusion ratios. Um, but in terms of you know specific recommendations of when to do it or guidelines, no, I'm not aware, and I don't think there's there's certainly anything out. But I would say, yeah, absolutely. Proning uh, during pregnancy is absolutely, um, you know, a strategy that is, um, that is certainly acceptable. Um, understanding that you should have sort of the appropriate resources, you should be at a at a hospital where you are in active engagement with maternal fetal medicine, with your obstetric professionals and all of that. So really you would treat it the same way you would treat, I mean, obviously depending on how pregnant in terms of how, uh, what trimester you would get, uh, you would always have more more involvement or less involvement in maternal fetal medicine. But in terms of treating ARDS without or with COVID in a pregnant patient, we really would kind of focus on the similar things that we would do for somebody who's not pregnant, and that includes proning. Yes, yeah, and and I know that um, you know I know that there have been cases of um, uh, prone patients who are pregnant, and I mean absolutely, and and it comes down, you know, I think this comes down, it's it, you know, our approach. I think a lot of our approach in the ICU is just so individual. It can become so individualized because there's just so many factors that play into um, into each case, into each patient. Um, and but absolutely, I think it's it, it's still an essential strategy that should be, you know, standard of care when you don't have when other um, sort of um, modalities fail to improve oxygenation. You should always consider proning. Absolutely. 
And I think it's important because sometimes, I mean, uh, intensivists feel that because the patient's pregnant, they're going to be treated differently. But I think that in this case, especially as we get more, more and more cases in some places, um, the treatment, as long as our supportive therapy would be very similar, taking into consideration some of the physiologic issues that we discussed. I would like to, and you did, you did mention, I think that we could just say that in terms of other salvage therapies, ECMO, um, inhaled uh, nitric oxide, you would treat it very similarly. If you think that the patient needs that to survive, whether they're pregnant or not, you would offer it to the patient if they're appropriate patients, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you want to do is just really um, uh, utilize, you know, you know your your um, you know what tools you have at your disposal to really just you know get get your patient through the critical period. Um, but I think um, you know understanding that the utility of ECMO has really changed in the last um, our perception and our understanding of it has really changed in the last ten years. Um, towards that of being more sort of um, showing higher survivability with, with ECMO. So I think that, uh, you know, the evidence that's coming out for VV and VA ECMO is certainly proving to show that sort of treatment option as a, um, as a, as a, a modality for these patients. Um, and I think this is going to be important as the levels of maternal care are rolled out. and You have these sort of regional... You, you have these um, these level four centers that are going to be your um, your referral centers. It may be that this is where these patients that are the highest risk for decompensation are going to go, and it these may be the centers where there's going to be a cluster of sort of these ECMO patients. Um, but yeah, I think that that's very you know those are very a good point sort of mentioning those two treatment modalities. Yeah, absolutely. So I would like to just uh, talk about, I mean, drug therapy, obviously uh, very extensive. There's a lot of things that have been thrown out and are being studied for, for COVID. But I wanted to, to talk with you about like three things that I think have emerged that we're using more and more based on the available evidence or some uh, or sometimes more robust than others. And just maybe uh, get your quick thoughts. And I know that there's no trials for pregnant patients but it just if there's any any considerations that that you're aware of for for pregnancy. So, in terms of uh, a, obviously of antivirals, remdesivir is the is the drug that's being utilized in the United States at least, and that showed some improvement in terms of time to symptom improvement in one study by the NIH. And there's more studies going on. Is that is something that a pregnant women, if they qualify based on their levels of support for 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 a respiratory failure? Would would uh, would get? Do you know of anything about remdesivir in pregnancy, Cesar? Uh, yeah, so remdesivir was actually um, uh, studied in pregnant patients during the Ebola uh, outbreak, um, and it was actually um, approved for uh, pregnant patients. Um, so we, even though the the number of patients that was treated at that time was relatively small. Um, nonetheless, it did show sort of this uh, a safety profile um, for Ebola. So you know, remdesivir is a repurposed antiviral that was originally, you know, used for Ebola. And so a lot of our data comes from, you know, from that. Um, so clearly from, from considered, yeah, 
so consider a safe option. So I think it shouldn't be a contraindication. I think it's important for people to know that. The other thing that I think has been yeah. talked a lot about lately is uh, obviously the use of steroids for ARDS. I mean, steroids are utilized for fetal maturation in pregnancy and, and other situations, uh, prepartum. But uh, in terms of now, there seems to be emergent data from the recovery trial on the use of dexamethasone for patients requiring oxygen or mechanical ventilation. Is that something that you foresee as being problematic or not a non-issue for pregnant patients? That's a very good question because, you know, if we look historically at the role of steroids in, AR, in viral, you know, sort of a, a, in viral respiratory illness, it's certainly, you know, the you know, staying away from steroids has always kind of been, or at least steroids were associated with worse, worse outcomes. This is sort of a, uh, has been somewhat of a surprise. So, you know, I think that certainly more data is needed in the, in the, at least in the pregnant uh, population. But, um, and that's sort of the challenge that we have as, as intensive is sort of treating, you know, patients in an evolving sort of a, a clinical scenario. Um, what I've learned is, you know, do I see potential in it? You know, I, I definitely see potential in it. But as we learn from hydroxychloroquine, uh, you know, sometimes you have to really take a step back and really let the data sort of come in and analyze things because, you know, a lot of patients were exposed to, you know, hydroxychloroquine and that could have definitely um you know, we know now these sort of the adverse effects from that from that from that medication. So, um, to my knowledge, that that one study is showing the the role of dexamethasone. But I think we certainly need um, sort of more data, especially for um, or in pregnancy, to really make a, an accurate judgment on that. Excellent. And uh, um, the other topics that I think, as we wrap up, that are relevant is. Obviously, a lot of people are exploring under registries or clinical trials the use of convalescent plasma. That would be more in the category of transfusions. So I presume that that would not be something that would be pregnant patients would be excluded if they're done within the 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 auspices of a trial or a, a or a registry. Is that correct? So as far as I know, pregnant women are being enrolled in studies and i believe the university of pennsylvania has a study where they're enrolling pregnant patients but i'm not aware of any published data on this uh uh on this yet okay so we'll wait for that uh, anticoagulation uh, the risk of thromboembolic complications is obviously higher with pregnancy it's also been reported to be higher with COVID. there's still a lot of discussion on what's the ideal a therapeutic approach, but I think that most people agree that a COVID-19 patient should be on prophylaxis uh, chemically. Are there any drugs that you would recommend uh, as preferential for pregnant patients in terms of DVT and thromboembolic prophylaxis? Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, pregnancy is a hyperprotonable state. You're at a higher risk of clotting. Um, there's not to, to my knowledge, there's not any information right now with COVID-19 and pregnancy and specifically with, with, with the burden of clotting. But if we just look at, you know, let's take a step away from COVID-19 and just look in general, like what uh, modalities, treatment options are out there, what works in pregnancy. Um, we know that low molecular weight heparin 
and definitely produces a more predictable sort of response than um, than uh, ultrafiltrate heparin. Doesn't require routine monitoring, um, and um, and then in terms of um, just knowing things about your choice of anticoagulant for uh, for pregnancy, heparin. Um, it's the most commonly used anticoagulant during pregnancy. It does not cross the placenta. It's not teratogenic. Um, so, and so it doesn't result in fetal uh, anticoagulation. Um, so I think those are some of the sort of important uh, aspects of sort of anticoagulation when we're thinking about um, anticoagulation in pregnancy. Excellent. And I think that, like like we said, Cesar, there's still a lot, obviously, that we don't know about pregnancy and critical care in general, and even less about what we know about pregnancy and COVID-induced critical illness. But I think that discussing some of these topics is of great relevance to what's going on right now. I, I really appreciate, I mean, your, your time and expertise. And I think that definitely we'll, we'll keep a, we'll all be posted in terms of new data coming down, down the line and things evolving. But uh, to close the podcast, we we like to talk about some questions that are not related to the clinical topic. Would that be okay? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the first question relates to books, and I was just curious if you could give us uh, some books that have influenced you the most or that you have gifted most often to others. So, you know, one book that I picked up uh, was actually a gift for me from my wife was... uh, it's called 12 Rules of Life and an Antidote to Chaos. So it's written by uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson, who's a professor, uh, I believe, of psychology in, uh, in Canada. I forget which uh, university he is. He may be at the University of Toronto. But it's just a fantastic way to, um, you know, it's a great approach to sort of structuring your life and just taking a, a biological kind of perspective into psychology, which is fascinating. But that's definitely a book that I would recommend to, you know, my friends, colleagues, anyone out there who's listening, uh, 12 Rules of Life by Dr. Jordan Peterson. So we'll definitely link that up on the on the show notes. I've read it. I think a lot of very powerful insights into human behavior. And I think things that you can apply, like you said, uh, to your life to make, in a, a little, to make things a little bit better, which I think are especially important in times that are difficult, like the ones we have now, but also just in terms of living a more deliberate uh, as opposed to uh, a life by default. So I think that's, that's a great recommendation. The second question uh, relates to something that you believe to be true in medicine or in life that many other people don't believe. That's a fantastic question. Something that I believe to be true in, in the clinical setting, you mentioned. Yeah, it, it can be clinical or, or yeah. outside of clinical. I mean, uh, whatever you want, but that other people don't believe or don't behave like they believe. <laughs> you know, this may this answer may take on a philosophical tone, but I'll give it a shot. I think that subscribing to evidence is something that's easier said than done, and what I mean by that is. I, when we really sit down and make decisions, are we really looking at objectively at the data? Or are we really doing things that are based off best practices? Because we should, right? That's sort of the, the, the that should be the standard, which should be driving our decision making. Should always be evidence based 
uh, medicine. And I think that one of the challenges is just, again, being, you know, human psychology, being in a clinical setting, which is also a work setting, is the introduction of bias. So I think, you know, implicit bias, which has taken on a whole new reality now, you know, in this, uh, in our world, we understand it very well. Uh, that it's a it's a problem. Um, and there's a lot of forms of biases. You know, one that I mentioned earlier was just treating young patients and assuming they're always pregnant patients are always healthy. But are we always using evidence in the right way, or are we introducing sort of political or maybe other external factors into our decision making? Because I think that that's something that maybe we can all be a little better at, you know, in, in, in all settings, you know, whether it's in business and medicine, but especially in medicine, we should always adhere to evidence. We should always adhere to best practices that are based on scientific data. And really there should be no introduction of sort of these political, if you will, sort of connotations that can, or, or political tones that can influence our decision-making. I think that's one of the cha- uh, our challenges in medicine that really, um, uh, you, you know, it's it's a it, it's a challenge going from the it can be a challenge going from the trainee to the you know to the advanced kind of role when, when, once you graduate. But you should always adhere to evidence. And I think that when you talk about bias, I think that you're right. There's so many types of bias. But one thing that I think a lot I see, and we all have biases, we just have to be able to recognize them, right, and use uh, tools like evidence to try to overcome them. But the confirmation bias, right? So I criticize somebody for doing something because I don't believe in that and there's no evidence. But yet I do something without evidence that I do believe in. I justify whatever I have around me to, to confirm to that bias. So I think that biased is a definitely present ever present and i think like you mentioned right now in a time of a lot of polarization within our society but also with a lot of stress through the pandemic that has become even more evident and i think more more dangerous so i think it's a great it's a great comment i think something to, to think about and the last question cesar is is there anything that you will want every intensivist listening to us today to know could be a quote or fact or just a, a thought Yes, I think uh, you know. The other day, I gave a I gave a little talk to our residents, um, a little farewell on their graduation, <laughs> and uh, you know everything is virtual now because of COVID. And you know, I was thinking about like our role as doctors and what does it mean to be a physician um, from now in 2020. And you know, I live in Ohio and. I guess naturally, if you live in Ohio, one of the first people that comes to mind is LeBron James, right? <laughs> so LeBron James is a superstar, probably the best athlete coming out of Ohio ever. And he coined the term more than an athlete. And I think that was powerful because if you think about the role of an athlete, like look at historically, let's look at like uh, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali was, you know, certainly just an advocate for for his uh, community and was an advocate for um, for just you know issues that come from a kind of social justice roots. And LeBron James has sort of kind of done the same thing. And he's like, you know, we're more, you know, my image means more than just me being a basketball player. You know, I sort of am a role model for other people as well. And he understands that responsibility. And 
I told the residents, I'm like, just like LeBron says, more than an athlete, you should strive to be more than a doctor. And I really, you know, thought about that because I think it's true. I think that we are more than a doctor. And let's think about our role in society. And let's think about our role in promoting change. Let's think about our role in providing best practices and in influencing our legislators. Are we, you know, are we really doctors if we're not influencing the people that write the laws? You know, I, I don't think so. I think that to be the full extent of a physician, you need to influence the people that are shaping this world because we are the experts in healthcare. And so we need to be influencing the people that are shaping our legislation, our, you know, writing our, our laws. So that's where that term more than a doctor comes in. You are more than than an employee. You are more than just being confined to the walls of, of your hospital. You're sort of, we're part of this network of, of physicians uh, across the world, even not just the country in the U.S., but across the world where our responsibility stretches beyond our own, uh, our own hospital. So I would say I would leave everyone with the, the thought of, you know, be strive to be more than a doctor. And I think that will lead us down a better path for our future. I think that's a beautiful place to stop. I really appreciate your expertise, your time, and look forward to talking with you again soon on the podcast. Thank you, Patrick. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound Critical Care is transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.